All right, good afternoon. Uh, welcome to uh, the this uh, online Cato forum for a book called uh, Evasive uh, Entrepreneurs and the Future of Governance with the author Adam Thier, who is uh, kind enough to be joining us. Uh, I thought uh, before uh, jumping into the discussion, I'd remind all of you that you are welcome to submit questions using the hashtag uh, Cato Books. We are live on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and of course the webpage. Uh, I'll be taking a look at the questions uh, throughout the event, which should take about an hour. Uh, and I thought we would uh, dive right in first by having uh, Adam uh, introduce himself to all of us. So Adam, why don't you uh, tell the audience here who you are and what you do? Well, thank you, Matthew, and uh, thanks to Cato Institute for hosting this event and for publishing my book and for making it a better book. I really appreciate all the help that everyone at Cato has given me on this book. Um, again, my name is Adam Thier. I'm a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, where I cover the public policy implications of various emerging technologies. Uh, I've spent the last 30 years at five different nonprofit institutions studying these issues. And I served for a brief time, uh, about five years actually, not so brief, uh, as Director of Telecommunication Studies at the Cato Institute in the early 2000s, where three of my 10 books were published. Um, but this 10th book, I'm very pleased uh, to have published by Cato, uh, and I look forward to our discussion today. Yeah, we were very happy to, to publish it, but I, uh, I actually wanted to start uh, the discussion by mentioning that uh, like like millions of other uh, Americans, uh, I, I was told that I would be working from home for a while, and uh, I was looking around my office for for books I might need or need to consult uh, during this period of isolation. And I actually uh, I remember packing uh, one of your books here, uh, Permissionless Innovation, which uh, I, I thought was a pretty uh, comprehensive uh, defense of technological freedom and and a, a, an attack on what's called the the precautionary principle and. Uh, I thought I, I would first ask you, um, given that you wrote Permissionless Innovation, why why is this book necessary? What, what What's it doing that Permissionless Innovation didn't? Right. Well, after I finished uh, Permissionless Innovation and started pushing it out, I was doing a lot of lecturing on the road at various events and especially at a lot of university centers, law schools, philosophy programs, public policy schools and others. And a lot of people were coming up to me at these events or writing me afterwards and providing me with really interesting examples of what they thought to be permissionless innovation in action. And one of the examples, it was a student, a young man who came up to me after an event and he's, he asked me some questions. He's like, by the way, what do you think of pothole vigilantes? And I said, excuse me, what are pothole vigilantes? And he's like, well, these are the people that are going around and in their communities after hours working together to basically fill potholes because governments have failed to do basic infrastructure repair. And not only do they fill them up, but they then beautify them by painting them over with some art or maybe even putting a little plant inside of them or something just for fun. And I found this astonishing. And I said, well, send me some examples of this. He sent me some Reddit threads and other things. And the next thing you know, it was front page news in the Wall Street Journal about pothole vigilantes. And that was just an amazing example. And I started sort of a compendium, if you will, of all these examples of sort of like bottom up, spontaneous innovation by the public, not all of which was commercial in character. A lot of it was open innovation or household innovation. And one example just started piling on top of another as people came forward with it. And pretty soon I had an entire paper, what I thought might be the basis of a nice chapter about permissionless innovation in action. And I needed to come up with a better term for what all of these different individuals were doing, because in many cases, knowingly or not, they were butting up against social or legal norms. 
they were being entrepreneurial in an evasive way. And thence, hence the name evasive entrepreneurs, which I'm, I'm not the one who coined. Some of my colleagues actually uh, at George Mason University in the economics department, I think were the first to use the term evasive entrepreneurs. And I've basically said, that's exactly what's happening is that witnessing a lot of failures within our, our government and within our society, average people are stepping up and doing really interesting things using new technological capabilities. And I started documenting this. It became chapter two of the book that is now the book in front of you on evasive entrepreneurs and the future of governance. I want to uh, t tell the audience that uh, yeah, I, I recommend the book. It's, uh, it is, of course, uh, full of discussion about technology policy, but it's also, I think, of interest to anyone who uh, is thinking about uh, social contract, about theories of, of state and governance and civil disobedience, uh, because I, I want to... Uh, ask a, a question that um, I think is important for, for this kind of context, which is what, what does it mean for someone to be an evasive entrepreneur? Because I, I think a lot of um, people might ask, well, a lot of these so-called evasive entrepreneurs don't know that they're actually evading any regulation or law. They're just doing things. Um, so can you just nail down slightly what, what you actually mean by someone who's being an evasive entrepreneur? Are they actually engaged in what people traditionally call civil disobedience or is this something a little different? It is a little different, but it can incorporate forms of technological civil disobedience, as I call it in the book. Uh, when an evasive entrepreneur acts, it may be knowingly or not knowingly uh, uh, observant of the law. It can be just doing things, as you said, to improve the world or their, or their own condition. And it could butt up against social or legal norms, and they might not even know it. This is a major problem that I document in the book, and it's also a major explanation for why evasive entrepreneurialism is happening as much as it does, because there's just so much accumulated law over the decades in the United States that at some point it's very hard to even know what the law is or means. And it runs right up against the question of like, what is the consent of the governed? How do we understand what the law means? And if we can't understand it, must we follow it? That's a really tricky philosophical and ethical question. But the bottom line is that practically speaking, again, people are acting because we now have new decentralized technological capabilities at our disposal as a society that we can utilize to get things done. And that's happening. Sometimes when we push harder and do it knowing we might be butting up against the law, that would represent a form of technological civil disobedience. And you see that happen, for example, when protesters in the Dakotas are protesting a new pipeline being put in and they put drones in the air to film police abuse. This also happened in Ferguson uh, with regards to police abuse uh, following uh, riots there. And I have many, many other examples in, throughout the book of average people utilizing new technologies to push back against public policies they find illogical, archaic, uh, or just you know basically in defiance of common sense. And this is, of course, particularly true in the midst of the COVID crisis. Right. Yeah. Let's um, let's talk a little bit about that. We're, of course, um, having this this event uh, in the in the middle of the the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, have you seen any so-called uh, evasive entrepreneurs um, rising to the occasion uh, during the crisis? Yeah, in fact, for my uh, introductory launch essay that's on the Cato blog right now, I talk about the explosion of evasive entrepreneurialism and technological civil disobedience in the wake of the COVID pandemic. 
it's really been astonishing. Every single day I pick up the newspaper. And in fact, yeah, yeah, I am such an old timer. I still read physical newspapers. And here on the front page of the Wall Street Journal is another example today of people coming together, scientists and philanthropists, to basically push back against Food and Drug Administration regulations that limit the ability to come up with new and innovative forms of testing. But it's not just that. It's even mundane things. Think of all the ways that people have used 3D printers to help with creating like personal protective equipment for for doctors and nurses or for ventilator parts. Um, This is a commonplace thing now. Doctors are putting out calls for anybody in the community who can help with regards to the shortages of various types of medical devices or personal equipment. There are also examples of high school students who've come up with amazing COVID tracking sites because they found the government sites too clunky and frustrating. One of the most popular ones in the world I document in this Cato blog post uh, was started by a a high school teenager. There's examples of high school Mm -hmm. uh, science professors coming together, creating their own little uh, testing uh, facilities when the community systems fall apart. There's examples of people who are pushing back against hand sanitizer, hand sanitizer regulations. Distilleries are stepping up and making different types of hand sanitizer supplies because of the shortage, even though federal laws prevent it in some ways or state laws do. There are people who are mm-hmm. circumventing uh, licensing regulations for cutting hair or doing basic things. So there are many, many, many examples that are coming forth in the midst of this crisis. What it shouldn't be surprising, but it's also a sad story. It's a story about how our government has failed to adapt time and time again. And it shouldn't take a crisis like this for people to have to realize how broken government institutions and policies are. We should have reformed these things a long time ago. Uh, the uh, comments you just made uh, reminded me of a question I had while, while reading the book, which is uh, potentially a, a problem of being being over-inclusive. Um, so I wanted to ask you a, about this. Um, so you can think about uh, people that you just discussed. So a, a high school student or maybe someone uh, who bought a drone or got a drone as a gift and just started flying it. And they may be ignorant of the regulations that, that govern their activity, but they're, they're, you know, they're not hurting people. Uh, they're doing something valuable. Um, but do do, they, do those kinds of people belong in the same category as, as a company like Uber, for example, where um, some would argue that, that Uber actually just took a look at the regulatory landscape, knew that there would be issues, and just said, you know what, never mind, let's just drop into New York and we'll just bet people fall in love with us. Uh, is it really fair yeah. to equate those two kinds of activities, um, given the, the ignorance of the law on one hand and knowledge of breaking regulations uh, on the other? It's a great question, Matthew, and I deal with that extensively in the book, and I talk about distinctions between various types of commercial and non-commercial innovation, but also people who are knowingly pushing up against uh, public policies and those who aren't. What Uber and Airbnb and Lyft and their social uh, or other uh, sharing economy companies did was really beyond just evasive entrepreneurialism. They were engaging in regulatory entrepreneurialism, uh, which is a term I discuss in the book that others have coined to describe when a company or a private player specifically makes changing the law part of their business strategy. And clearly Uber and Airbnb and Lyft set out with the intent to push up against public policies and say, you know, we're not going to get a fair shake from state and local leaders. Let's basically offer a little bit of choice to the public and see if they like these waters and want to taste more of them. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. Basically, by pushing up against the law in enough municipalities and states, Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, and others were able to successfully change public policy by changing 
the dynamic of political negotiation by essentially increasing their leverage by utilizing a consumer or a customer base that we that became essentially citizen lobbyists on their behalf. And I tell the story of Uber in New York um, in the book um, where they basically mobilized their own users to say, take a look at what will happen to your app, your Uber app, if Bill de Blasio gets his way and shuts us out in New York. And this was the famous de Blasio mode story where Uber literally recoded their app one day to basically show on their slider an, a de Blasio mode that said, if you have, if de, Bla, if de Blasio gets his way in New York, there'll be no more cars in, anywhere on Manhattan. And the public uh, responded to that. Now, Uber, of course, is a pariah to some, and they've had some incredible missteps and made some real serious mistakes, and they've pushed too far in some ways. But I argue in the book that we're better off that a lot of folks like Uber and others do exist and offered us a choice. And now we recognize the fact that we should have reformed taxicab law and hospitality hotel laws a long time ago to accommodate more choice and competition. They got into the position they were where they felt they needed to be regulatory entrepreneurs precisely because public policies just would not change despite all the evidence that they were harming consumer welfare. Mm -hmm. Uh, I want to remind uh, anyone watching that you are welcome to submit questions using the hashtag Cato Books. Uh, and on that note, I wanted to uh, discuss, uh, actually raise a question that was submitted by Brian Schnack. Brian, thank you very much for the question. Uh, the question goes to, uh, I suppose, a question about rhetoric. Isn't there a worry that uh, you you and your allies just sound uh, like a bunch of a bunch of libertarians. Uh, can you think of any rhetoric that uh, makes your argument um, appealing to perhaps uh, the uh, conservatives of the world, but also the progressives? Yeah, absolutely. That, that's really important. And it's something I stress in the book. In fact, I come right out of the gates in the opening chapter in the first few pages and say, you know, if you're looking for a crypto anarchist manifesto, this isn't your book. Um, that's not what I've written here. In fact, I think a lot of my libertarian friends are going to be uh, are, are going to be troubled by some of what I say in later chapters about the needs for various types of soft law governance and responsible innovation principles or norms that need to instill uh, technological innovation and uh, developmental processes. But to answer the question that uh, Brian's asked, which is a great one, um, I think that there are many, many ways that we can uh, open uh, doors to new bridges to be built with people of different political persuasions on this front, because what we're talking about is good government. A lot of what's happening with regards to evasive entrepreneurialism is happening, as I already mentioned, because we did not get various public policies cleaned up. We never have spring cleanings for the regulatory state. We never clean up yesterday's archaic uh, regulatory morass. And a lot of people do really good work on this from people like Philip, Philip Howard at the Common Good, uh, people at the Brookings Institution. I highlight a lot of their works and reform efforts in their Progressive Policy Institute, uh, ITIF, many, many others. And then, of course, there's been many conservatives who've, who've made calls for, for more reforms of this sort. Even if they have some qualms with big tech companies, they understand big lum, uh, you know, lumbering bureaucracies aren't necessarily always in tune with current technological or, or uh, marketplace developments. So I, I really think that there's a case to be made for comprehensive reform and embracing the idea that innovation can serve as what I call sort of the new checks and balances. That when people go out and innovate, when average people come together and find ways to push back against misguided policies, that sends us a signal 
about something that's wrong in the fabric of our government and that we should use that. We should embrace that opportunity to say, okay, let's identify what's wrong in these bureaucratic programs or where we can tweak different public policies or maybe abolish certain policies that have held back progress and have undermined consumer welfare. I mean, why do we, why are we even debating right now? Whether, for example, as some states are wondering, whether it's allowable to cut hair at home because it might be in violation of occupational licensing laws. That's insane, right? I mean, isn't it wonderful, for example, that if this crisis has done nothing else, it's opened up the world to all suits of new telemedicine? Or how about just different types of like food and beer delivery options? Um, there's all sorts of things that had to change because of the crisis and did, but we should have recognized before that before. I think this is something that we can come together in a nonpartisan way and say, look, we should have accountable, representative, responsive, adaptive governance. And it's got to begin by cleaning up yesterday's messes and making sure public policies are aligned with common sense and the consent of the governed. Well, I think we should tackle uh, actually just one of the, the the assumptions of the book there, which is, you know, you're portraying a lot of this as um, a lot of these uh, innovations as, as positive, um, that we're enhancing uh, consumer welfare, that we're growing knowledge, uh, we're learning new things. Uh, but increasingly, I think it's fair to say that, uh, that there, there are those um, out there in the world who are actually in, skeptical of innovation per se, right? That there's um, uh, many people arguing that we should be tapping the brakes on, on some of what we've seen uh, in innovation. And uh, one of the more interesting, I mean, well, the whole books, of course, are very interesting, but uh, something that stood out to me was uh, that you actually devote a, a bit of time to a defense of innovation uh, as, as a concept. And I was hoping you might be able to maybe uh, summarize that argument for the audience and explain why uh, innovation uh, has to be defended and why it's worth defending. Well, as I argue in the book, um, the, the freedom to innovate is essential to human betterment and improving our standard of living, living um, across the globe. It is, in fact, uh, the prime the prime mover of progress throughout history. And a lot of the de debates I have, both online and in person at various university talks, are are with self described humanists who contrast humanism and technology and act as if these are two opposing forces that are in tension. And a big part of my book is an effort to say, no, that's wrong. In fact, there can be nothing more human than the act of building tools to improve our lives and the lives of others, including our loved ones. And that when people take steps to try to be entrepreneurial and offer new and better ways of doing things, we should reward that sort of entrepreneurialism and we should understand how it benefits society. In fact, I almost called this book technological humanism in order to basically sort of be right in the face of the humanists who say, no, 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 technology is opposed to our humanism, they're undermining our humanity, it's re remaking our humanity. I've heard all these arguments, I address them all in the book and try to reframe the debate. But I also try to extend an olive branch to, the, to, to that crowd and say, look, I understand you have some very legitimate concerns about technological innovation because only a fool will deny that innovation can undermine values, institutions, public policies, and more. And that process of change that Schumpeter and so many others describe so eloquently in the past as creative destruction is really something that's tough for a lot of people, especially people who have their institutions or values that they care about undermined or, or eliminated. Um, uh, one of my heroes that I talk about in the book, in fact, I, I begin and end the book by talking about Calustus Juma, the, the late scholar from Harvard, um, who grew up in Africa and used to work at the UN, and his amazing book on innovation and its enemies, which documents throughout history so many case studies 
of how new and different ways of doing things were always resisted. And another hero of mine discussed in the book, Deirdre McCloskey, um, she writes in her famous uh, new trilogy, her massive uh, three-tome trilogy uh, on innovation. She talks about how innovation and technological improvement was it was regarded as heresy for the longest time, especially by church officials, but just more generally by society uh, writ large because it disrupted settled norms or institutions. But we have to be willing to allow for a certain amount of that disruptive change to happen or else we'll never have progress. This was the point of my last book on permissionless innovation and the precautionary principle, which was to point out that our default policy needs to be something closer to the green light of permissionless innovation as opposed to the red light of the precautionary principle, because it's only through trial and error that we get learning and wisdom, that we understand through our failures how to be better off as society and improve so that we have fewer long-term failures. And that's really what I tried to extend and build upon in this book, but also answer the hard questions that are asked by the critics, the technological critics, and say that there are better ways to find better governance mechanisms other than the precautionary principle, which would ultimately shut down the process of trial and error learning. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have a uh, question here from uh, from Jennifer Huddleston, who's a, a friend and of course a, a, a colleague of, of yours. Uh, she asks, uh, or no longer actually, she recently left. But um, anyway, um, how does uh, the pacing problem come into play with evasive entrepreneurship? Uh, could policy ever keep pace in a way that evasive entrepreneurship wouldn't be necessary? So I guess uh, before you answer Jennifer's question, maybe uh, briefly out outline what, she was for, what she's referring to here in the, the pacing problem. What is that? Absolutely. And thanks for that question, Jennifer. And I miss you. I wish I uh, wish you were still with us. But uh, Jennifer was my frequent co-author on a great many pieces. And she was very, very helpful in uh, helping me get through this book over the last three years when I was pulling my hair out and wondering if I'd ever finish. Jennifer's question is an excellent one about the pacing problem. The pacing problem refers to the idea that uh, technological innovation tends to outpace the pace of government change and that sometimes um, technological change can be so fast, almost exponential, whereas government change is at best incremental. And the problem is the gap between those two things is growing every year between technological change and the pace of government uh, change. And this is creating enormous tensions and leading to a lot more evasive entrepreneurialism uh, by extension. So the question is, is how can we align these things or what can be done about it? And uh, we still need to make every effort to try to find a way to help government cope with the pacing problem um, by reforming traditional laws and institutions. But we also need to understand that governance itself may need to evolve to be less about traditional hard law and more about so-called soft law. And Jennifer and I basically wrote a very, very long law review article together that became uh, the basis of a chapter uh, of this book about how soft law governance is becoming all the rage in technological uh, uh, governance fields. Basically, it refers to the idea that you should have try to bake in best practices by uh, privacy by design, security by design, uh, safety by design within the technological developmental processes without forcing it through heavy-handed top-down regulation. Soft law is more of a bottom-up iterative approach to governance, uh, a lot of give and take and a lot of informality, but a lot more adaptability. And there's real dangers with this. And this is what I alluded to earlier when I said a lot of my libertarian and conservative friends will really uh, reject a lot of what I say later in the book, where I say we need to answer the technological critics by making sure that we have certain types of policies in place, not necessarily regulatory ones, but certain types of assurances and best practices that make sure that technological design processes are in line with some 
in, important human values. And I really single out privacy, safety, and security as the three drivers of so much concern uh, about technology and, and what is driving the so-called tech lash in this country and others. Now, this won't necessarily assuage all the concerns of the critics. Um, they will still say we need, you know, something must be done and we need some pretty heavy handed overarching, you know, federal uh, or continental wide directives on privacy, safety and security. And certain some laws are needed, but realistically, most of them aren't going to work. And I've discussed in the book at length the practical case for what I'm making as opposed to the normative one. Just saying, like, do you understand we've been trying in the United States, for example, for 10 years to get an overarching privacy bill of rights? And how's that going? The answer is it's not going right, but we have had real progress in terms of having best practices developed for privacy in other contexts. We've also done a lot on cybersecurity that has been important, but we haven't passed any sort of overarching uh, cybersecurity regulatory framework. And I'm glad we haven't because the day after we'd pass it, it would probably be obsolete because of the pacing problem. And so we have new technological realities on the ground that we have to deal with. And I think a lot of technological critics are turning a blind eye to that or just saying, oh, you're just being a technological determinist. You just think technology will just run right over everybody and there's nothing we can do to stop it. But we, the people, can stand up for ourselves and we can we can put in laws in place. And I'm like, well, yeah, maybe you can. And, you know, good luck trying. In some cases, they're needed. But in reality, we need a backup plan. And the backup plan, I really think, is some form of soft law and informal governance mechanisms um, to deal with these things. Yeah, um, I want to remind everyone, you're welcome to submit questions. I can, I can tell already uh, that I'm not going to be able to get to all of them. So you, you, your comments have prompted um, a flurry of questions here, Adam. But uh, I wanted to make sure to uh, get one of the earlier questions, which was submitted by uh, Francis Parnell, who asked specifically about uh, FDA regulations. Um, so we discussed earlier a little bit uh, a discussion about um, COVID-19, um, but in the healthcare sector in particular, maybe you could highlight um, a few other uh, opportunities or low-hanging fruit when it comes to uh, healthcare and uh, the similar similar industries. Um, and maybe um, it would be good um, once you've highlighted them to to discuss a little bit how your approach would have worked in some of the instances you highlighted. I know you discussed 23andMe, for example, in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, referring back to the, the Cato blog post that just went up live today about my book, I spent a lot of time highlighting how the FDA in particular has been the subject of a, a, a lot of criticism in the wake of the COVID outbreak, and that a lot of the evasive entrepreneurialism that we're witnessing is in response to very heavy-handed um, uh, backwards-looking FDA regulations, as well as some uh, Center for Disease Control regulations that make it extraordinarily difficult to engage in any sort of outside-the-box thinking with regards to even very mundane types of innovations. I mean, how in the world are we having uh, a battle over like, what are the regulations governing you know, face masks or personal protective equipment? I, I understand there need to be standards. Again, going back to the idea of soft law, you know, we need to have clear standards for like, what is a high quality face mask or a, a PPP or whatever else. But the reality is, is that if the regulations basically shut down any sort of alternative approach to developing these things, that people won't build them. That if they're told, you know, not to build new and, and better uh, uh, mousetraps, we won't get them. And so a lot of what we're seeing right now is a response to that, as well as other Food and Drug Administration regulations through the years. Um, now, here's the good news. And this will, I think, surprise a lot of people when they read the book. I spent a lot of time praising the FDA in the book because 
The FDA in recent years has come up against technological change like no other regulatory agency in the U.S. government. And to their credit, they are understanding that the old regulatory playbook just doesn't work as well anymore. And a lot of what they're doing, to go back to the soft law point, is basically coming up with informal guidances and different types of best practice approaches to deal with certain types of technologies and technological change. Uh, one of the best examples is, is the FDA is sort of asking the metaphysical question, what is this thing? Is this a smartphone or is this a mobile medical device? And of course, the answer is it's both. And every single day, we are giving more and more capabilities in our smartphones to track our fitness and our health, to, to do other types of uh, things that involve uh, medical uh, uh, applications. And what's interesting about that is that those are all technically regulated medical devices. But with the sheer volume of activity happening when all the different health and fitness apps flying into, you know, the Google and Apple app stores every day, the FDA has finally said, yeah, we can't we can't just pigeonhole everything like that into old regulatory regimes. We have to have a new way of thinking. And they have. They basically said, like, look, we're going to come up with a more flexible framework for governing smartphone health and fitness. And that's a that's an encouraging sign. Now, it's not the saying that, that every libertarian or conservative want, like, we need to get the FDA the hell out of the way. And, you know, they, they, they encumber too many things. Well, they do. But the FDA is not going anywhere. And I don't think it should. I think we still need an FDA. But it needs to be a very different FDA. It needs to be one that's far more responsive to technological change and accommodating of it. And so I think that's the way out of this mess that the FDA and other regulatory bureaucracies find themselves in, is a new willingness to adapt and change as opposed to just putting up the red light of the precautionary principle and saying, nope, thou shall not. If you don't have a, all the regulatory blessings, you can't do anything because that's what ultimately encourages so many people to behave evasively and try to evade the laws. Instead, the FDA has said like, here's a framework. Here's how we can educate the public about how to better use these technologies safely. Um, and this is gonna be very important as we move from just an age of smartphones into far more sophisticated and potentially intrusive forms of medical applications and we get into the the strange and surreal world of things like biohacking and advanced personalized medicine which i discuss at length in the book and in a combination of wonder and horror because people are doing amazing things to themselves and their own bodies or encouraging others to that have me scratching my head wondering like are they crazy and at the same time a big believer in you know the right to try and, and personalized medicine and allowing new types of treatments and therapies the FDA needs to learn how to strike that balance. And I'm, I'm actually optimistic that they're starting to slowly turn the corner. And in the wake of the COVID crisis, I think they're going to have to. Interesting. Um, your, your discussion of soft law prompted a, a question from Anonymous, um, who asked a question, uh, how would you respond to other skeptics of soft law who may worry that this could become a type of de facto policymaking and could actually lead to more government intervention without the procedural protection provided by the normal policymaking process? What's your take on that question? It's a great question. I spent a lot of time in the book talking about that as well as in my law review articles and other papers about soft law. Um, it, it absolutely could be abused because we know this because it already has been abused. Soft law is nothing new actually. It's been around for a long time. And in fact, it can lead to arbitrary uh, unconstitutional types of governance mechanisms. Ultimately, we still need to constrain government activities and make it accountable. And we need to make sure that uh, old laws that are still uh, around actually to guide the regulatory process 
aren't ignored, like the Administrative Procedures Act and uh, cost-benefit analysis and things like this. But there needs to be some balance here. We need to understand that just going by the book doesn't necessarily always yield the best results, especially if you want more innovation. The reason I'm optimistic about soft law as an alternative to traditional hard law regulatory regimes is because ultimately it allows the regulators to still have a say in the process of technological innovation, but it makes sure that that say isn't final and basically uh, closing the door on any sort of experimentation and trial and error. That's absolutely essential that we leave the door open. And so we want to make sure that they don't abuse that authority so that we don't have a situation like we did in the old days with the Federal Communications Commission, who used to utilize very amorphous powers to try to informally censor broadcast television and radio. And they actually did it so effectively that we came to refer to this as, quote unquote, regulation by raised eyebrow. That's not good. Another word for it would be agency threats, which my former colleague Jerry Brito wrote about when he was with Mercatus in a, in a law review article. We need to make sure that doesn't happen. And I understand the conservatives in particular who will say that this is a, a real threat if we don't have some guardrails on it. But I would say to those conservatives and other libertarians who have this argument, well, the problem is, is that what's your what's your alternative? Um, because I know people on the left and the progressive side will say, well, we need more beefed up government regulation and, and agencies. People, uh, you know, libertarian and conservative disposition will say we need less, that we need to get rid of these agencies. Well, when has that happened recently? In my lifetime, it hasn't happened since I was in elementary school in the 1970s. I mean, agencies just don't go away anymore. And so I guess there's a certain amount of realism associated with what I write about in the book that we have to understand how we're going to deal with these regulators and these regulatory processes. And we need to push back very, very aggressively to make sure they're reformed or constrained. But we also need to understand that they're going to continue to exist and find some sort of a, a happy balance. What's your uh, take on concerns about regulatory capture that even in whatever regulatory regime you have, uh, and whether it's the status quo or one under uh, your proposed regime, what, what's to stop uh, powerful market incumbents uh, influencing the, the regulatory apparatus in an anti-competitive way. Um, and, and this is a concern I know, we, we, there's obviously a lot of concern today about big tech, but it's not just a big tech discussion, right? Uh, and right. Uh, it doesn't seem to be a, a problem uh, unique to um, kind of the issues you've, you've outlined in the book. But I'm wondering um, if, if you have a theory about how that kind of regulatory capture or interference could be avoided. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time uh, thinking about and writing about regulatory capture uh, through the years. It's been a, a lifelong focus of mine over the last 30 years as a public policy analyst. And it's a chronic problem. I mean, this is a problem that has been with us for a long, long time. This is not of recent making. In fact, I have on my blog, the Technology Liberation Front, I have a compendium uh, called Regulatory Capture, what the experts have said. And it just goes throughout all of the different uh, works of political science, economics, law, and more that I've found through the years where people of all sorts of ideological dispositions have identified the problem that is regulatory capture. And there's no easy answer to this. The, the easiest answer that I think some would say is like, well, if we just get rid of the agencies and a lot of the laws, then obviously regulatory capture goes away. Yeah, there's some truth to that. But the reality is, is, again, if you're realistic, you understand a lot of these agencies and laws aren't going away and you need to find some sort of way to constrain the capture problem. Um, I, I think, obviously, if we can bring more transparency to regulatory processes, that's a big part of it. But what I argue in the book is that there's a new type of check and balance when Congress abdicates its role as checking regulatory agencies and constraining uh, regulatory capture, which is that innovation 
is really becoming an important check and balance on these problems. And that it provides us with a sort of a release, uh, a relief valve to allow to dissipate some of the pressures associated with a overly complicated and bureaucratic regulatory system. And it gives innovators who are constrained from innovating by regulatory capture a chance to break outside the box. Again, this is the upside of the Uber and Airbnb story. For the better part of 70 years, economists, political scientists, and even government agencies themselves had documented the problem of taxi cab and hotel regulations leading to industry capture. Nothing ever changed. We had all the evidence in the world on our side. The Federal Trade Commission itself at the federal level was even going after localities for being in cahoots with taxi cab owners when it came to passing out taxi cab medallions and licenses and nothing changed. And then along came 2010 and Uber and, and Lyft and things changed. They changed for the better because we, the public got a taste of competition and we weren't going back. And that is a powerful, I think, paradigmatic story about the powerful benefits of evasive entrepreneurialism and innovation as a check because it changed the way public policy was administered in not only that sharing economy sector, but many of the others that have followed. We're having a different debate now about things like micromobility and other types of technolo technological innovations in different sectors. It doesn't mean that regulatory capture goes away. And I'm actually concerned now, like, could the new innovators like Uber, Lyft, whatever else, become tomorrow's regulatory cronies, cronies who are trying to capture the regulatory system. We already see some sharing economy operators trying to write local policies in such a way that benefit their current business model. We need to make technological policies as agnostic as poss possible about technology's uh, possible futures and make sure that there's always the chance to go back and refresh and revise these public policies. That's why I'm a big believer, and I talk about this at length in the book, about sunsetting about having periodic sunsets on regulatory policies governing new emerging technologies. I've even been, been so bold as to suggest that it ought to be in line with Moore's law. Moore's law, the idea that basically the power of a semiconductor doubles every 18 months or so, uh, and the price comes down considerably. Well, that governs all technology companies and sectors, but it doesn't govern government. And technology companies are expected to reinvent themselves and their business models every 18 months to two years, but not government. Well, why not? It's because we have a set it and forget it mentality with government. We, we build and freeze rules into place and forget about them. And that's how we end up in the mess that we find ourselves in today, where we're still arguing about like, well, what, you know, 1960s regulations governing face masks and, and, you know, hand sanitizers do we need to worry about if we're trying to solve this problem in the midst of a pandemic? That's insanity. But doesn't your, your book, though, uh, includes examples of, laws or regulations that haven't been sunset that just seems to be acceptance on the um on the side of law enforcement or government that is just not worth it so you talk about for example uh some of the older automobile regulations um so my favorite you know I, I learned to drive in new jersey and it was uh, news to me that apparently i, I was supposed to be honking every time that i right. i passed a car but so that that didn't require a sunset it's just that new jersey cops don't feel like it's worth enforcing and drivers don't know it so why why is the sunset necessary if uh, if we get to a critical mass of people understanding that a rule is just uh, unenforceable or unnecessary 
Well, that's a good question, Matthew. And I think those those examples that I use in the book uh, about the automobile laws are, are really instructive and explain why we do need to change the law. Because in some cases, the law is just insane or insanely insulting. I mean, it's not just that we have regulations like we do in New Jersey and other areas that say you're supposed to honk every time you pass. And I, I point out in the in the book, uh, someone who wrote about that, like if everybody in New Jersey honked before they passed in a car, they would probably be dead. We would have massive road rage if you always honk before you pass somebody. It's a crazy rule. Nobody does it. What's even crazier is the number of uh, laws that still exist from 100 years ago, like red flag laws. There's laws in some communities that are still in the books that say uh, if a woman is operating a, a motor vehicle, a man is supposed to run in front of her and wave red flags and tell the world that a woman's coming. I mean, that's insultingly stupid. And even if it's not enforced, it should be removed from the books. But the real reason we should clean up these rules is precisely to get back to the point I made at the beginning, which is that sometimes the law becomes so voluminous, so confusing that we don't even understand what it means. In which case, I ask the deeply philosophical question, can it really be law? If we cannot possibly understand the law, can we really call it law? Should we be expected to always obey it? That's a really tricky uh, ethical and legal question. We wouldn't have that question or being confronted with it as many times as we are if we would actually take the time to clean up our messes from the past. And the other reason this is important, Matthew, is because the agencies, when they turn a blind eye to it, and I, I have an extensive discussion about that activity in the book, this is called rule departure. And rule departures are becoming the norm in a lot of uh, technological sectors because the, even the agencies themselves, the regulators, are understanding that they don't understand the law. And that they basically say, well, yeah, that's crazy, but don't worry about that. Let's talk about something else. Well, why? Why should we talk about something else before we clean up that other mess? Because ultimately, it's going to just build upon the sediment of all the other regulations. And pretty soon, you can't get your ship out of port because there's so much sediment in the harbor. And that's a problem of a regulatory accumulation that my colleagues at the Mercatus Center uh, led by Patrick McLaughlin and others, have done extensive work documenting and then showing the costs of regulatory accumulation on not just the economy, but more broadly on innovation culture, on like our ability to be entrepreneurial and want to go out and new, do new and different things. If the first thing I see in a field when I go out to do something new and different is a rule book that's yay thick and says you have to understand all of this before you can launch, even if a lot of those rules aren't enforced, you're still intimidated by it, and you ultimately are chilled from one actually going out and doing new and different things to make the world a better place. I want to play devil's advocate before getting back to audience questions and ask, um, is there a chance that you're being a little too gloomy here? Um, so if you take a look at the world, right, and we have the United States, despite a lot of the issues that you've highlighted, is still home to some of the best technology research institutes in the world. People come from all over the world to uh, tinker with uh, with toys uh, here in the U.S. at academic institutions, but private uh, private companies. Uh, all of the companies I think that we've mentioned today so far have been American. Uh, so we have, of course, the Googles, the Apples, the Ubers, the Airbnbs. Um, so someone might say, well, actually, to me, it looks as if America's a great place for technology entrepreneurs. It's actually one of the things that makes America stand out. Uh, what's what's your response to that kind of criticism or pushback? I think it's a fair point, but uh, with a caveat, because we are talking about a lot of technologies and sectors right now in this discussion that really are doing a lot of innovating and 
in many ways have a better legal or regulatory environment. Um, and in particular, digital technology companies are blessed with being born free, as I call it, as opposed to born in regulatory captivity. They were not born into a regulatory regime and governed by uh, a, a, a regulatory agency like uh, you know the FDA or the FCC that would have constrained their innovation. And that sort of permissionless innovation environment that we had in the United States, I mean, the proof's in the pudding. I mean, they became, these companies became world leaders and household names across the globe because of, we got our innovation culture right. The problem is, is that we live in a world of regulatory and technological and marketplace convergence. There's convergence all across all sectors and digital technologies are ultimately bleeding into many other older traditional sectors from automotive technologies to medical technologies to transportation uh, and energy. The problem is, is that those sectors are sort of born in regulatory captivity. Uh, I spent a lot of time building on the work of my former colleague, Eli Dorado, in the book, who's written eloquently about this, about the problems in those four sectors in particular uh, of energy, transportation, um, healthcare, and more, and, and basically points out that we don't have the ability to regulate without, uh, to, to, to innovate without going through a lot of regulatory hoops and loops, and that that ultimately is holding back innovation where we need it most in our economy today. And again, we're finding this out in the wake of the COVID crisis. And so the, the, the news is not so good in those sectors. And we need to find a way to level the playing field and give everybody more innovation opportunities. We need to clear away the regulatory deadwood in those sectors more than anywhere else, because ultimately that probably was going to have the highest uh, impact on quality of life going forward uh, if we can clean up the mess in those uh, in those fields. Okay, I want to return to questions. There's uh, one here from, uh, I believe, your, your colleague, Trace Mitchell, um, and I don't know if this is a sign of dissension in the ranks, uh, but uh, Trace asks, uh, clearly not all examples of evasive entrepreneurialism should be tolerated. So how do we go about analyzing which examples are socially beneficial? Um, so I, yeah, so who, who gets to decide here? Um, even uh, if we don't abolish these regulatory agencies, someone's got to do the, the social uh, uh, beneficial calculus here. Um, how, how, how do we decide those questions? So that's a profoundly important question. And thank you, Trace, for asking it. He and I debate this uh, this question a lot in the office. And uh, and Matthew, you know that we discuss this a lot uh, ourselves when we're talking about things like facial recognition technologies or drone technologies or other things that could be used for uh, widespread surveillance, which concerns us greatly. And you've done great work on that yourself at Cato. And you know these these are tough questions. And I spend the last two chapters of the book talking about various types of technological risks and how to deal with them and trying to figure out if we can come up with a more rational framework to discuss what we mean by the term existential risk, because there are many, many terms that are thrown around too loosely in the world today. And in the field of technology policy, everybody wants to talk about existential risk associated with or whatever their pet peeve is. And the problem is, as I talk about in those chapters, is that we have to step back and understand that the base of the word existential is existence and that not every technology or form of technological change poses an immediate threat to human existence. They can pose threats or dangers to us in other ways, but we have to come up with a better scale of what is really worth applying a precautionary principle mindset and set of policies to. And we should tightly limit it to those things that are truly existential in character. And there are hard questions that I grapple with in the book. I get into things like, what should we do about killer robots and about things like facial recognition technology? And I end up arguing that we do need more regulation there, the same way we did for uh, older things, older technologies like nuclear power. 
where we absolutely needed to have an international framework for governing the, the uses and specifically abuses of uh, a dual use technology like that. And so the question is, you know, how do we deal with that versus something like, oh my gosh, Facebook is destroying privacy and it's an existential threat to our entire humanity. And no, come on. Uh, I, I mean, I have my own problems with Facebook. A lot of people think it, it, it invades privacy, but I can leave Facebook anytime I want and it's not going to kill me. And, it, you know, I've got ways to deal with it and adjust my privacy settings. That's a totally different creature than something like, what are we going to do about the fact that we have decentralized capabilities such that people can build in their own home now with 3D printers or or other types of replication devices, all sorts of advanced medical devices or, or even uh, drugs. And it's easy for a lot of people to say, well, then let them find whatever. But there can be enormous negative externalities associated with that. So in the book, I try to create a framework for how we deal with it. And it's going to be, it'll have to be the subject of maybe a whole other podcast we'll have someday where I get into the theories of Nick Bostrom and others about how to deal with these uh, global threats without having extraordinarily heavy-handed, destructive types of forms of constraints placed on important dual-use technologies. Um, and that is something that I hope people will be willing to read chapters uh, eight and nine in the book and see for themselves how I have uh, grappled with those hard questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we're we're in the, I would guess, the final lap here. We've got about uh, 12 minutes to go, but I want to uh, get to some of the, uh, the other questions here. I have a question from Michael Goff, who asks, uh, I'm curious what you think of the charter cities movement and whether it is a useful approach to regulatory innovation. So uh, maybe, I mean, address charter cities, of course, if you would like. Um, it's, it's an interesting topic. But then also, I'll piggyback my own question on that, which is what's the best level of, of governance for uh, emerging technologies, whether it's the city, state, or if the feds should really have a hand here? Great, great questions, Michael. Uh, uh, thank you for those questions uh, that you sent in to us. I, I, I really have struggled with this question a lot in the past. I, I love the idea of charter cities and various types of sort of like innovation hubs and finding spaces of innovative freedom, if you will, uh, geographically speaking. I, I do say I'm a little bit skeptical because I don't see a lot of positive proof that uh, they've been able to scale up in many contexts. Now, maybe we just haven't given them enough shot and we need to find a way to lay the groundwork to have more of these zones of freedom, innovation freedom. Um, I get a lot of calls from uh, state officials saying, like, how do we how can we be the next great innovation hub in Indiana or whatever else? You know, how can we have Silicon Valley in Kansas? It's not that easy. And clearly, we can try to do something to influence innovation culture by getting public policy right and then constraining it in some sort of geographic way. But of course, I'd rather get it as that innovation freedom as far and wide as possible. And I do have one hang up with innovation hubs or charter cities, which is that I'm always a little bit worried about how they might be gamed and you know who's on the other side of the line and how, are the, how do those lines work. But of course, we already have that problem, right, with federalism more generally. And theoretically speaking, to get back to Matthew's question, this should be something that our state and local governments already handled nicely in terms of a laboratory of democracy approach. And in some cases, that laboratory of democracy works for innovation. In some cases, it doesn't. I mean, I've already given the example of uh, taxicab regulations and how they constrain uh, choices for consumer choice throughout the decades. So it didn't work so well there where almost every community was captured and had no competition. 
But it did work out nicely in other contexts. And we've now got a really vibrant movement afoot in many states like Arizona and others to have so-called sort of right to try movements. And there's been great, great stuff done down by the Goldwater Institute by uh, uh, Tim Sandifer and folks down there to try to get uh, the right to try movement uh, to give it more uh, lift. And, and you know, th that, that's the kind of thing that I'm optimistic about in the long run, because I think if it doesn't happen, a lot of state officials understand that they're going to lose competitive advantage. I mean, you look at the Arizona case in another context, when San Francisco was trying to overly uh, regulate driverless cars in, uh, in, in their city, um, the governor of, of Arizona, Governor Ducey, put out a call on Twitter, no less, to, to Uber and others saying, hey, we're open for business down here in Arizona. Come on down and, uh, you know, do your innovating down here on the roads uh, down here. Now, of course, there's risks associated with that. And indeed, there was the first driverless car death in Arizona. So there's these questions about how can you get policy right by balancing out competitive federalism and innovation freedoms alongside technological risk. Um, but the bottom line is I think we're going to see more things like charter cities, innovation hubs, and, and similar concepts uh, start to pop up. Um, even overseas, where everybody wants to make sure that they can be the next great uh, hotbed of innovation for artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, drones, whatever it is uh, you want to think of. Mm -hmm. um, a, a question from David Phillips from Facebook. Uh, he asks, how can there be a better conversation between manufacturers uh, and innovators with government and society concerns? Um, so where's the the burden here, right? I mean, if if if, if people are tinkering uh, and they're trying to build things, is the burden on them to make sure they're in compliance? Uh, and if uh, if it is, then should government just do a better job at highlighting what regulations are governing these new and emergent technologies? Uh, or is it up to entrepreneurs to check their own boxes? Uh, what's the best way for innovators and government to have those conversations? That's a great question, and, and thank you, David, uh, for asking it on Facebook. I, I spent a lot of time in the book discussing this exact question about what do we do in a world of bottom-up innovation and, and sort of household entrepreneurialism and social entrepreneurialism, um, where people are coming together in small community settings and doing really interesting things with everything from 3D printing um, to various types of digital technologies and more. And, and I point out that there are some very serious risks there that need to be addressed. Now, how should public policymakers address them, especially if it's not commercial in character? This is one of the interesting things I talk about at length in my book about the way public policies affect innovation, depending upon whether or not a penny is charged for this for the activity. If you put a drone up, for example, at a at a wedding, and you you're just uh, you know you're just doing it for fun to take a picture. You might be regulated differently than the guy who's a professional wedding photographer and brings it as part of his service and charges for it. And that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Um, and we have many, many other examples of that playing out. The bottom line, though, is, is that we need to have a, a conversation about how we can have best practices and sort of accepted principles for responsible forms of innovation in all these different sectors and fields that we've discussed here today. And I spent a lot of time in the, again, the last two chapters of the book talking about the responsible innovation movement, um, which has uh, a lot more currency in Europe, but is starting to catch on here, usually just called technological ethics. And I talk about how we can bake in these sort of safeguards and best practices by design up front 
through a combination of collaborative efforts, through industry, through individuals, through hobbyist groups, through government and others. And then a lot of it comes down to governments utilizing a, a process that is often called multi-stakeholderism. Basically bringing a lot of people to the table and saying, come together, hammer out some best practices, talk about how we can use maybe forms of risk education to communicate to the public certain dangers associated with these technologies, and then help us come up with a blueprint for how going forward we can allow for innovation, but also within some boundaries and can clearly point out where there should be some illegal activities if there are any. And going back to the point you made, Matthew, a moment ago when we were talking about facial recognition technologies and drones, that's clearly an area where I think there have to be at the margin some constraints, especially on governmental uses of these technologies to make sure that we don't abuse public trust or liberties. Um, but in other cases, we know drones and biometrics can do wonderful things for us because they already do it every single day. And so encouraging that kind of an ongoing dialogue is really important. I think the multi-stakeholder process is probably a big, big part of that. And I have a question uh, that comes in via Twitter from um, Vinet Sharma, who asks, uh, why is evasive entrepreneurship identified with uh, new business models like Airbnb and not with uh, traditional businesses? Um, is there something about, let's call it a uh, new technology that makes this a particularly appealing way to go about innovation? I mean, isn't this a model that uh, traditional businesses could apply uh, to? Absolutely. And in fact, that's an excellent question that I talk about in the book. And I say evasive entrepreneurialism has always been with us. There have always been people who push back against social and legal norms and challenged not only public policies, but traditional types of uh, uh, commercial establishments or norms. And the difference is today, we have a whole new arsenal of technological uh, options at our disposal that behave in a more synergistic and opportunistic way to basically allow for really quick silver types of entrepreneurialism to happen. Just it, it's so hard to get a hold of it. It just moves so fast. And I, I sometimes refer to these in the book as technologies of resistance or technologies of freedom. And, and they're multiplying so rapidly. Uh, we've already discussed many of them here today, but the, we've just really scratched the surface. And so it's different from the past because in the past, we lived in the smokestack era and physicality mattered so much more. And most of the innovation that was being done was in the world of physical things, of atoms. And now a lot more of it's done in the world of intangibles and bits. And so that makes it a lot, lot harder to constrain innovation. And it's why regulatory uh, arbitrage is happening, innovation arbitrage rather, is happening across the globe today. It's something I write about in the book about how easily innovation and innovators can move around the globe to wherever they're treated most hospitably. And that wasn't possible in the past. You just didn't pick up your factory and go somewhere. Um, today, you can actually move yourself and your brain and your ideas, many of which will just be intangible intellectual property. You can move those anywhere. And so that is a game changer. That has really created a new dynamic that is qualitatively different than evasive entrepreneurialism in the past, which was much, much harder to set in motion. Mm -hmm. um, so we're in the final couple of minutes here, Adam, and I was hoping uh, we could conclude with some of your um, most hopeful thoughts of uh, technology. So we've discussed uh, biohacking, driverless cars, uh, 3D printing, uh, but there's a lot we haven't discussed. And I'm wondering um, if you could leave the audience with um, some of the technologies that most excite you, uh, that are low-hanging fruit for regulators and lawmakers to look at when it comes to reforming regulations. What's, uh, uh, 
amid uh, these sometimes gloomy days keeps you smiling when it comes to technology and innovation? Well, we're beginning to see the, the fruits of uh, artificial intelligence and, uh, and machine learning in our society in many different ways, but we're really only seeing the tip of the iceberg there. And there are so many different applications. You mentioned driverless cars. You know, I personally spent a lot of time working on that issue, and it's, it's, a, it's a slow rolling, excuse the pun, a slow rolling uh, innovation. We had all hoped that things would be coming along a lot quicker, and they haven't. Uh, in some cases because of rules and regulations, but in other cases, just because technological change is hard when you're talking about something as complicated as an automobile. But if we got that right, if we got driverless cars right, think about how it would be potentially the biggest public health success story of our lifetime. I mean, every single day in the United States alone, a uh, hundred people die behind the wheel due to automobile fatalities. Something about six, something around 6,500 people are injured. I mean, these are astonishing numbers. This is a huge human death toll. And then, of course, there's all the environmental issues and traffic issues and everything else. If we could start to, again, excuse the pun, put a dent in it uh, by basically allowing more uh, autonomy with driving, you have to believe that we could bring down that death toll significantly. And in my own lifetime, I've talked to my kids about this. I expect that they will not have to teach their own kids how to drive a car. And I said, and that's probably a good thing. Because frankly, uh, this old bag of bones called Adam Thier behind a wheel is probably not a good thing at age 51 anymore. Uh, we'd be better off probably having a robot drive the car at this point. Uh, and so I think that's uh, the area I'm most excited about is uh, autonomy, uh, AI, and various types of machine learning technologies. But there are so many others, and I hope people will read the book because uh, I discuss all of them in great detail in all the 10 chapters. Yeah, thank you, Adam. Um, we're, we're out of time here, but I, I want to thank you for uh, for joining me for a discussion of this book and for writing the book. Um, I, I apologize to the audience that I couldn't get to every question. Um, thank you for submitting them. Uh, fortunately for you, uh, Adam is easy to find on Twitter, and I'm sure he'll be happy to uh, take questions there. Um, but it's just uh, remains for me to thank Adam once again, and uh, thank you for watching, and uh, read the book. Uh, it won't disappoint. Thank you, Adam. Appreciate it.